Kids, if you're outside playing with one of your friends, just having fun, doing something, hide-and-go-seek, playing in the sandbox, um, climbing trees, playing with dolls, whatever. If you're playing with a friend, and all of a sudden your friend turns to you and says, go clean your room. Or says, you need to go wash your hands. Go wash your hands. Are you required to obey your friend? Your classmate or your next door neighbor who is your age and they tell you to do that? No. You're under no obligation to obey somebody your own age who's in the same category of you as child who happens to be your friend who's being bossy. You don't have to obey. Right? But what if the person telling you go wash your hands or Go clean your room. Is your mom or your dad? Are you required to obey at that point? Yeah. You absolutely are required to obey at that point. If your mom or dad tell you one of those two things or something like that. Why? Why the difference? It has to do with who's telling you. One is your, your friend. And one is your parent. And it makes a big difference as to whether or not you're required to obey or how you're, how you're to respond to uh, go clean your room as to who's telling you to go do it, right? makes a big difference. This text speaks of God's word. And we are to obey it, children, because of, first and foremost, who's speaking to us in it. And that's one of the points of this sermon today that you need to keep in mind as we work our way through this passage. You adults, of course, as well. Just a reminder, uh, in 3.7, chapter 3, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews began, and I read, started reading there, began an exposition of Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, which was written by King David. Um, over a thousand years before the writer of the Hebrews is writing, by the way. And David is writing about what happened about 400 plus years prior to his day in the wilderness, to the Israel, uh, in the wilderness generation. He's writing about that in Psalm 95. And, and he's, um, and the writer of the Hebrews has been, um, basically working his way, uh, through an exposition or an exegesis, unpacking what David means in the Holy Spirit through David in Psalm 95. And I read that to you uh, as a, uh, to show you the context there. And the writer of the Hebrews here in, in this book, he takes what David wrote in Psalm 95 about the Israelites' rebellion against God uh, some 400 years earlier prior to David's day, and he takes that and he applies it, the writer of the Hebrews does, to the church of his day, warning them, 2,000 years ago, roughly, not to fall into the same sins that the people of Israel did, 1,400 years prior to 
1,450 years prior to uh, Jesus' day. Well, what was that sin that Israel, uh, the wilderness generation, fell into? What exactly was it? Well, both David in Psalm 95 and the writer of the Hebrews here in uh, in verse two of our of chapter four make it clear what the sin was. The sin, the core sin, the underlying sin was unbelief. Was unbelief. Specifically, a stubborn refusal to believe and then act upon the promise that God had repeatedly made to them to the effect that he was going to give them the land of Canaan as an inheritance. And God had repeatedly told them this. And every time God reiterated that promise in, to Israel through Moses and subsequent um, prophets of God, every time God made these promises, actually it was through Moses, uh, there was an implied command in that promise that God was giving them that accompanied it, an implied command to them to enter into the land of Canaan and take possession of it. Implied in the promise was that command. However, a majority of the spies, when a majority of the spies who went in to spy out the land came back um, from that expedition and brought a bad report about giants in the land, and oh my, lions and bears, oh my, when, when he came back, when they came back rather, and the people of Israel heard this, the majority, almost all of them actually, absolutely refused to enter the land. Out of fear and unbelief. And the fear was because of the unbelief. It was a conscious, deliberate, stubborn decision on the people's part, the wilderness generation's part, not to believe the solemn promise that God had made to them, namely that Canaan was theirs for the taking. I don't believe it. It was what the majority, really all but Caleb and Joshua, it seems, believed. Didn't believe it. And according to Numbers chapter 14, verse 22 and verse 35, I'm not going to take time to read it, but according to that, this was this conscious, deliberate decision on the vast majority of the, of the Israelites' part was part of a pattern. It was a pattern on Israel's part, a pattern of habitually responding to God's promises with disobedient unbelief. And this rebellious pattern of unbelief cost the wilderness generation dearly, did it not? They were prevented from entering the promised land of rest that God had been promising them. Which is why 
the fact that it costs dearly to disobey God by refusing to believe Him in His Word, which is, that's why the writer of the Hebrews here issues the warning that he does in chapter 3, verse 12, and then chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 and 11. So let me reread those. <clears throat> verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brethren. This is right after quoting uh, David's Psalm, Psalm 95, that was about what was going on in the wilderness uh, 400 years prior to his day, plus. Take care, brethren, he's speaking to his generation, the writer of the Hebrews says, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, notice it's evil, an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. And then over in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, therefore let us, this generation, let us, uh, in the writer of Hebrews' day, let us fear, Lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, God's rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, the wilderness generation also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And then down in verse 11. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest any one fall through following the same example of disobedience, meaning the disobedience of the wilderness generation. So the writer of the Hebrews, he he's fearful for the people of his day because he was writing to professing Jewish Christians who were looking back to the perverted forms of Judaism out of which they came and thinking that maybe that was what was right rather than their the gospel. And he doesn't want his readers to make the same mistake that their Israelite forefathers did with the result that they would miss out on the heavenly rest to which the Old Testament land of Canaan pointed. And God, through his inclusion of the book of Hebrews, the sermon of Hebrews, that's what Hebrews is, through his inclusion, providential inclusion of the book of Hebrews in the Bible, he is issuing the same warning to us. Which leads me to the two points that I want to make that are found in verses 12 and 13. And they are as follows. You and I must respond with faith and obedience. Or I'd actually rather say obedient faith. You and I must respond with obedient faith to the word on account of what it is. And then you and I must respond with obedient faith to the word on account of who God is. So those are the two points. So first, you and I must respond with obedient faith to the word on account of what it, the word, is. Notice the way verse 12 relates to verse 11, just before it. The writer, in verse 11, gives an exhortation. He says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest that's promised in the rest that God initially promised back in the wilderness. Uh, that it, and here, the writer of Hebrews is speaking of, the, of not the rest of the physical land of Canaan, but the spiritual rest that Canaan pointed to, which is the rest of heaven and forgiveness 
and reconciliation with God, but ultimately heaven. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. So there's the exhortation. But then in verse 12, he gives the reason why they need to do this, why they need to be diligent not to fall, in, uh, follow that example of disobedience. He says, for, there's the connective, for the word, and here he goes, it's like, what? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. His point, the writer's point is you and I, his generation, and God is speaking the same thing to us because he included it in the New Testament, you and I need to be diligent to enter the rest of heaven by never ceasing to believe in and act on the word. This is the doctrine of perseverance, folks. By continuing to actively believe in and act upon the truth of God's word, and we need to do this, we need to be diligent to enter that rest by obeying, by believing the word, which results in obedience, on account of the nature of this word that is the Bible. So let's talk about, because the text talks about this word. What does it say about it? Well, the first thing it says in verse 12 is that it is the word of God. Now, that's not revelatory to anybody here, I'm pretty sure. But we need to think about that for a moment. This is, this is not the word of Mark or Bill Pick a person. It's not the word of President Biden. It's not the word of Governor Abbott. It's not the word of... Anyway, somebody. Some famous preacher. I couldn't come up with anybody just then. No, this is the word of God. As opposed to the uninspired words of men. It is the word that is set forth in the pages of Scripture. Remember, by the way, the writer of the Hebrews, he is elaborating on Psalm 95, written a thousand years before his day. He is elaborating on Psalm 95. He is explicating Psalm 95 and its implications for the readers of his day. Psalm 95 was part of the writer of the Hebrews Bible. The Bible of his day. It's also a part, obviously, Psalm 95 is of the Bible of our day. We just have a little more than the writer of the Hebrews probably had to his Bible. We have more of it. We, we had the New Testament fully compiled. He probably had portions of the New Testament available to him, but not the whole thing. It was still being assembled, if I can put it that way, by the providential work of the Holy Spirit working in the church. But it was part of the Bible of his day, and he was explicating the Scriptures. And so... The point is, the word is the word of God written in the scriptures, written down. That's the word that God spoke, written through the pen of David. So that's the word of God, the written word. But the writer here in this text is also speaking not just of the word of God written, 
but he is speaking of the word of God preached. You say, where is that? Look at verse 2. For indeed, we, people of his day, first century, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us, notice preached to us, just as they also, the wilderness generation, just as they also. Here, the writer puts the good news that was preached to the people of his day, of the writer's day, in the same category as the word that was heard by the Israelites in the wilderness that David is commenting on in Psalm 95. Actually, he's quoting in Psalm 95, the Lord. So the the word that was written in in the writer's day He's equating that word with the preached word of his day. That preached word, when it is properly proclaimed, comes with divine authority. Jesus' authority. And you say, please prove that. Well, I'm not going to read both of the references. One of them I regularly read, which I'm not going to read today for the sake of time, but that's Romans 10, uh, 14, which speaks of the fact that Christ speaks through the word when it is proclaimed uh, by the preacher uh, to the degree that the preacher rightly is expounding the, the written word. But another passage, and this is the one I want to look at, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, which makes the point just as eloquently, I think. So it says, let me back up to verse 10. You are witnesses. This is First Thessalonians 2.10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Notice, it's believers that are being addressed, and He's talking in the past tense about how he behaved toward believers. And he goes on, he says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, implied through our preaching, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then he says this in verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, the Lagos, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The preached word is for, not only for the unbeliever, but for the people of God. Believers. And it carries divine authority, particularly the authority of the exalted and enthroned Son. Who is God, the Son. So, then, the word read 
the written word read and the written word preached must not be disobeyed, especially with impunity, because it is the word of God. He is the one speaking in it when you read it and hear it preached properly. And to dis- and so the Almighty who is speaking through this word is not one to be trifled with or disregarded. To disdain God's word is to disdain him. And to disdain God is to invite his divine anger and indeed punishment. It's the word of God. Secondly, it is a living word, the writer tells us in verse 12, as opposed to a dead word or a non-living word. It is alive. Now, obviously, it's not walking around on the pulpit here on all fours, but it's alive. It is infused with the very life of the one who wrote it, and is speaking through it. In a sense, in a sense, it is an extension of him. It contains his mind, his thoughts, his purposes, his holy will, and yes, his life. Or I could, to quote Paul, his life-giving spirit. It is alive with his divinity. Do you think about the word this way? Not just the written word, and I'm, I'm not talking about myself now, but the preached word when it is properly unpacking the scriptures. Do you think, whose voice are you hearing when I'm talking up here? It shouldn't be mine. I mean, yes, you know. In one sense it is, but in the in the heart sense it shouldn't you shouldn't be hearing Mark. You gotta train yourself to do that. We need to grasp what's going on when we read this. Or hear it preached. God is speaking. It's alive with him. Thirdly, it's not only the word of God and the living word of God, is an active word, the writer tells us, the Holy Spirit through him tells us. In that this word, read and preached, courses with divine vitality and power and energy. Indeed, the Greek word that the New American Standard translates as active is Ergetes, where we get the word energy from. Excuse me, energes, not ergetes. Energes. There, you can hear it easier. Energy, energes. The, the, the Holy Spirit's point, the writer's point and the Holy Spirit's point is the word does stuff. That's a kind of a 
not a very technical way of putting it. But you get the point. It does stuff. God's doing stuff when it is read or when it is preached. Think of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, verse 11. The Lord's speaking here and he says, um, starting in verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It does not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, says the Lord, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's wanting to do stuff. Either soften hearts or harden hearts. Finally, it's a word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, it cuts. It penetrates. It probes the inmost recesses of a man's heart. If God is gracious, that is. God shines His divine light on our hidden motives our hidden intentions with this this word of his and exposes those hidden thoughts, intentions, motives, etc. And like a sword, an actual literal sword, it is a lethal weapon. The scriptures are capable of pronouncing and inflicting divine judgment and wrath upon those who show contempt for it and therefore for God. Are you someone who is contemptuous of God's word at times? If you're appalled by my suggestion that you are contemptuous of God's word, keep in mind that if you treat the written word or the preached word lightly, Casually. Read it like you're reading Reader's Digest or the newspaper. Then that is a subtle form of contempt. I remember a story, uh, an account of a preacher years ago in a PCA pulpit actually who was reading God's word actually I was present for it I think I was present for this occasion myself actually it's the same occasion I'm thinking of anyway this preacher got up and he started reading and he was reading in uh, the Old Testament and uh, uh, Chronicles or something and uh, came across some names and he, he was reading along and he got to the names and he goes yada 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 It's amazing he didn't get struck dead just then. Had PCA credentials. 
Are there any portions of God's word that you are treating lightly or deliberately ignoring? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you ignore that or treat it lightly? Kind of... Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And then some of the Proverbs that have implied, uh, clearly implied commands that attach to them, even though they aren't stated as commands, although the one I'm going to read right now is Proverbs 4, and this is just, this is just illustrative. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You taking that lightly? I do at times. I think we all do at times. There's contempt when we do it. Chapter 10. Proverbs verse 9. He who walks in integrity walks securely. But he who perverts his ways will be found out. Chapter 11, verse 13. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. I could go on and on and on, of course. I just wanted to give you a few things to think about. But think of others that I haven't listed. Are there, are there portions of God's Word that you just kind of brush over and kind of speed by because you, it makes you uncomfortable? And like, ah, I'll deal with these other things. You're showing contempt. You're showing contempt. I am showing contempt when I do that, and I do, sad to say, at times. We need to repent of our selective reading of God's word, our selective application or obedience to God's word, which is selective belief or unbelief. We need to respond with believing and humbly obedient hearts. And to do otherwise, to ignore what I'm saying right now, what Christ is saying right now, is to be a fool. That's the worst thing you can call somebody, by the way, biblically speaking. And you're a fool on account of what the word is. The word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing, as far as the division of soul, spirit, and joints, and marrow, and so on. But you and I must respond with faith, faithful obedience or obedient faith, I should say, you and I must respond with obedient faith to the Word, not only on account of what the Word is, but on account of who God is. God is omniscient. 
our passage says in verse 13, and there is no cre- there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes with whom we have to do. He knows it all. He knows every last thing about you. All sorts of things about you you have no idea about. He knows it all. There is nothing hidden from his sight. Proverbs 15 uh, verse 11 makes this point eloquently when Solomon says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. You can't hide a thing from God. And this includes our attitudes, underlying our actions, our thoughts, our motives. Remember the Lord weighs the motives. Also from Proverbs. I've been in Proverbs. That's why you're getting a lot of Proverbs. Our intentions. He knows it all. And we might be able to conceal our inner thoughts, our inner attitudes or motives from those around us. We might even be able to conceal them from ourselves through self-deception. But nothing we can think or attitudes we can have or, or feelings that we feel inside can escape the scrutiny of the Almighty's omnipresent, omniscient eye. God knows everything, everything about you and me lies exposed before him. Now, he's a God of grace. And so in the courtroom of heaven, we are innocent. We are more than innocent. We are righteous. God is judge. Views us that way and ongoingly views us that way if we're a Christian. Forever. But his but he knows it's not like he doesn't see what we're doing when we're sinning. He sees that. And as father, he is, this is I think the best way to put it, as father, he, is, he sees it and is grieved. In the sense that, and I use that word the way scripture does, it's, that's an anthropomorphism. Uh, God isn't actually grieved in the same way you and I are. Uh, that would imply changes in God, and God does not change. But it is scriptural language. Um, it, if it is wrong and God is offended. And again, that's an anthropomorphism too. But you get the idea, I think. If you are like me, the thought that of God seeing and knowing every thought that has ever crossed your mind makes your blood run a little cold. Makes mine run cold. We have all thought some pretty wicked things over the course of our lives and perhaps even in the past week. Had it crossed our minds that God was watching us as we were thinking whatever we were thinking or saying or doing whatever we were saying or doing, had that crossed our minds at that point, there's a good chance we would have found the motivation to abandon those unholy thoughts or or words or actions. But probably, you, probably, I did not do that. We're not thinking about God when we were engaging in those sinful activities or behaviors or thoughts. Remembering that God is watching is one of the first things you and I need to do on those occasions when we are tempted 
to entertain ungodly thoughts, attitudes, motives, actions, etc., in defiance of God's will as expressed in his word here. Think about that. When you are tempted and you realize, I'm being tempted to think or do X, Y, Z, God's watching right now. And he tells me, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we need to remember that God is watching. And there's one other thought that we need to try to make ourselves think or remember on those occasions when we're being tempted to disregard God as he's speaking through his word to us, his word read or preached, and that is that God is our judge. Verse 13 again makes this point. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. The NAS says, with whom we have to do. But the best translation of the Greek here is probably him to whom we must give an account. I think there's a translation that renders it that way, if I'm not mistaken. New King James, yeah. It is to him, the Lord, God, the triune God, and to Christ, the judge, who is also the Savior and Redeemer and substitute of his people, but who is also our judge. It is to him, not to our neighbors, not to our parents, not to our children, not to our own conscience, but it is to him that you and I will one day give an account of the way that we lived our lives. This is true, by the way, not only of non-Christians, but of Christians alike. I'll prove it to you. Romans chapter 14, verses 12, uh, 10 through 12, reads as follows. Romans 14, starting verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Notice he's talking to Christians. Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we, we, notice, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul is including himself there. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, Paul comments, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. And then over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we read similar words or a similar thought, I should say, encounter a similar thought. First, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we, Paul's including himself, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's true of us all. And while those of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone to reconcile us to God and forgive us of our sins and get us to heaven, while those of us who are Christians are saved um, are not going to go to hell for our crimes, for our sins. We are not. We will, apparently, have to give an account to the judge of all for the choices we have made in this life in some sense including the thoughts that we've chosen to entertain and motives that we've harbored. 
Christian, God has judged your sins already by punishing Christ in your place. You are not going to hell. This is as close to hell as you will ever get. So he will, can and will, must actually, graciously forgive you over and over and over and over again and never stop doing so. But that doesn't mean you won't give an account. That certainly doesn't mean you have license to sin. If you're truly converted, if you're truly Christ's, if you truly have a new heart, you will increasingly hate your sin and strive to honor God in the way you live and put off sin and put on righteousness. And God can give you the grace to do that increasingly. You must trust him, though. You must trust him to fight that good fight in those difficult areas of your life. But if you're here or listening to me and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, who is 100% God and 100% man and the only source of forgiveness from God for, for sinners, if you've not trusted in him alone to save you, you are open and laid bare to God's eyes. He sees every last sin that you've committed and he is furious at you for your rebellion against him. In time he is, I'll put it that way. Ask me later by what if, if you want to what I mean by that. In time he is furious with you. But he extends to you the offer of forgiveness. Willing to give you his grace forevermore and forgive you of your sins and make you right with him if you will bow the knee to Christ and trust in him alone, not you, not him and something else, but him alone as your only hope of getting out of, of, of not going to hell and of being reconciled to God and having God as your friend rather than your arch enemy, which he is right now. But you must bow the knee to Christ in faith, believing, as the Word tells you, tells us, that He is the on, your only hope. That's all you need to hear from me today, if you're an unbeliever listening to this. Repent and flee to Christ. Only God can give you the grace to do that. But if you want to do that, he's already giving you that grace. Flee to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage.